Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Adam Carrington on what pro-life Christians should be doing a year since Roe versus Wade was overturned. Uh, that one partial victory can lead to another, can lead to another. And I think one person to look at this that many Christians have in the past is to uh, the evangelical Englishman uh, William Wilberforce. He did not get a complete ban on slavery and the slave trade in England immediately in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. It took him his whole life. Was that compromise in the sense of what he thought he could accomplish at the moment, but it was never a compromise of the principle or the pushing toward accomplishing that principle. Adam Carrington, next. With the overturn of the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, which returned laws surrounding abortion to the states, some believers might be tempted to think that battle is now largely won. Hillsdale College professor Dr. Adam Carrington says that's definitely not the case. Coming up, a discussion with him about his piece, Wise as Serpents, Innocent as Doves, One Year After Dobbs, Christians Have Much Work to Do. Dr. Carrington, tell us about the title of your piece, Wise as Serpents and Innocent as Doves, and how it applies to to this conversation? Yes, the thought was uh, for World to consider what the future might be and maybe what we have learned over the last year with such a significantly changed landscape with Dobbs coming out. And a thing that came to my mind in assessing the last year and then thinking going forward was when Jesus says to his disciples when he's sending them all out, to preach the gospel, to, to, to heal. He tells them, among other things, to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. And I thought that that combination and trying to make sure you don't conflate them or confuse them and understand them, that that state of mind and heart was something that I think the, the pro-life movement needed to take to heart and especially Christians within it. And so I was trying to argue, how could that wisdom be applied to this particular situation going forward? Okay, well, what does it mean, uh, being wise as serpents and innocent as doves, in, in this context in America with an overturned Roe versus Wade? Mm -hmm. and, and, and broadly, it means the idea that serpents may be wise, but not holy or just or righteous. Doves may be innocent, or righteous or good or at least seen that way but not the smartest creatures in the world <laughs> and i think jesus is uh, was was telling his disciples and then his followers down the ages that you need to be wise in how you try to realize the goals of the kingdom of heaven and you need to make sure that that wisdom doesn't undermine and become um a justification for sin, you know, the holiness. And so the way I thought about this with Dobbs is I think the innocent part, the pro-life movement has a fairly good handle on. I mean, we always need to be preaching against violence and against um, being mean-spirited uh, in the cause, but the never lose sight that the cause is fundamentally just, the protection of unborn human beings made in the image of God. But I do think we need to think anew about what's the wisest way to accomplish the most protection for unborn human life possible. 
And that that is something that we're in such new territory because the landscape has changed with Dobbs that I think we're learning and need to assess that learning going forward, that we're not merely trying to win a Supreme Court decision like we did. Now we have a legislative battle, we have state court battles, and, and we have an ongoing cultural battle for hearts and minds. And we need to know that those all three matter they all three have to be pursued and that part of being wise as serpents might mean that the strategy for each realm might be a little different than its counterparts. And as you said, always do all things being innocent as doves or peaceful in, in regardless of which realm you're in. And you, I think you use the word just, that it's a, it's a just cause and that needs to be emphasized. How can we do that? How is that accomplished? You know, all the vitriol that has been spilled against the pro-life movement and against the Dobbs decision in the last year might make some people who maybe are suffering such vitriol from neighbors or family members or others close to them may have second doubts or or second guess. I mean, if these people that I'm friends with or family with or who I think are decent human beings have this other view, you know, may, maybe we could back down. So I, I, I would say one is realizing that opposition doesn't mean you're necessarily wrong, and I don't think they are in this case. Um, but the other is that that uh, articulating that might look different in different realms. So if you're in a judicial context, you're maybe emphasizing what the text of state or U.S. constitutions say, you're focusing on the history, uh, the tradition, you know, what, what's the best way to articulate that it is just to at least allow um, the political process to protect the unborn. In the uh, political process itself, state legislatures, U.S. Congress, you can focus a lot more on the purpose of government and that a just government protects life and protects it from harm and articulate justice that way. And then third and finally, in the cultural realm, the idea that what do we as human beings, apart from government, apart from the law, what do we owe each other? How do we protect, how do we love our neighbor in the way that is the sum of the second half of the law? And how are we loving God in doing so? And so that's where I think the one central point protecting the unborn against this this sort of violence is just plays out and the wisdom of how we make that case depends a bit on the forum and none of us denying the truth of it or the justice of it it's it's a matter of in that forum what's the wisest way to uh, do to accomplish as much justice and righteousness as possible okay and I do want to get back to that and ask you about those those three realms more specifically my guest is dr. Adam Carrington he is uh, Associate Professor of Politics at Hillsdale College in Michigan, and we're talking about a, a piece uh, that he wrote recently for World Opinions, Wise as Serpents, Innocent as Doves. One year after Dobbs, Christians have much work to do. And you talked about it a little bit, uh, Dr. Carrington, but that, uh, that first part of uh, Jesus' uh, admonition there, wise as serpents, and w what does that mean in, in this context? I think it means... Uh... In, in, in general, it means that good intentions aren't enough. <laughs> Even the right cause isn't enough. One has to be thoughtful. And this is why I think you have 
a big reason for the book of Proverbs and is giving one wisdom in there are better and worse ways to try to accomplish the the truth. I mean, that's why for evangelism, people talk about better and worse ways to share the gospel. Well, similarly here, there are better and worse ways to make the case for life. And that's where I think that we need to ask the question of, depending again on the realm, like I was talking about before, what's the wisest and best way to accomplish the goal? And that, um, you know, there, there, there are ways of articulating when we believe life be, you know, that we believe life begins or, you know, we're, we're, uh, or when we want to make the argument for legal questions related to the unborn, what are the most effective arguments? And some of that wisdom is also knowing your audience. Um, some people might be in different contexts where there's greater concern about a mother's health or there's greater concerns about legal uh, uh, ramifications for, um, you know, uh, child care after children are born, or you, you could fill in all sorts of issues. And I think knowing your audience is a big part of it and knowing where are they hung up on defending the unborn and, and wanting to end abortion and how can you meet them in that way? Because one person's issue may be another person's uh, thing they have no problem with. And so, again, knowing one's audience, I think, is a big part of this as well. Mm. Well, you say uh, in your piece, Why is a Serpent's Innocent as Doves? Uh, one year after Dobbs, Christians have much work to do. Uh, you say that the triumph of June 24th, 2022, when uh, the Dobbs decision was issued, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, that that has been followed by mixed results at best uh, across the country. And I'm wondering if you could kind of help us to understand what those mixed results are. Right. So Dobbs really got the Supreme Court almost completely out of determining abortion regulations and whether they were constitutional or not. It may play on the very, very outer edges in the future, but it is not going to be micromanaging it the way it did since Roe. So what then happened was everything was opened up to Congress and the state governments. And that's where things have been mixed. There are a number of states that banned abortion outright, with very few exceptions, maybe for the, the health of the mother and life and maybe for other uh, small exceptions. Uh, others had more uh, less restrictive bans, but still bans. Um, and, and those were, I think, generally victories. Where things haven't been as good is, one, you've had a battle in state Supreme Courts where instead of arguing that the U.S. Constitution protects a right to an abortion, litigants like Planned Parenthood and others have argued that the state constitutions of, say, um, South Carolina or uh, 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 Georgia, you know, or other places, that protects a right to an abortion. And they've had some success there in basically instituting state-level Roe v. Wades that don't apply to the U.S. Constitution, apply to the state constitution. And finally, even though we've had some legislative victories, there have been a number of places where there have been ballot initiatives to basically codify Roe v. Wade. And in my own state, where I am now, Michigan, that 
codification of Roe v. Wade passed by 14 points in states like Kansas and Kentucky, where you would think that if any place uh, a, a pro-life majority may exist, the pro-life movement lost those initiatives too. So that's where I think it's mixed, uh, that those have been definitely defeats and some of them surprising defeats that I think has may, means that we need to be assessing what went wrong, what can we do, what can we do better. Do we have any idea? I, I mean, I realize perhaps it, it would be speculative, but the numbers of abortions, I mean, obviously they've decreased. Do we can, can we quantify that at all? It's not like we're seeing a 50% drop or an 80 or 90% drop, but a very significant, uh, very notable drop that is uh, more than any drop we've seen in any year since Roe v. Wade was introduced. Um, I, 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 it seems fairly apparent. The exact numbers will have to probably wait till we have a little more distance to for the accuracy of the data. But what I saw, um, uh, uh, the, the sources I saw that were not actually, by the way, pro-life leaning, was talking about uh, around 50,000 fewer abortions, which isn't cratering the number of abortions, but is a, a notable drop. Mm-hmm. Over the year, over the, this over the year. past year. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Carrington, uh, throughout this conversation that the pro-life movement is fighting a three-front conflict, and perhaps people don't typically think of it like that uh, in the in the state courts, the legislatures uh, of, of the states, and on the cultural front, and each requires a distinct strategy. And you've talked about that some, but I'm wondering if we could look at each one of these on the judicial front in the courts. What does that look like? What do you think is are the big challenges in the judicial realm? I think in the judicial realm, in some ways, the path is already most set because it will, to some degree, be replicating the argument that was built up over 50 years against Roe v. Wade and then over the previous 30 years against Planned Parenthood v. Casey that affirmed and tweaked Roe. And but it, it will require the wisdom. And, and this is where federalism matters. Sometimes we're too overly focused on the national level. People need to be invested in and aware of the history of their own state constitutions the history of abortion legislation in their their states, in their own states, and bring that to bear on the the, the question of how to interpret their own state constitutions. Now, that said, Dobbs isn't a bad starting point because it fairly thoroughly talks in more generalities about the overwhelming opposition to abortion that existed in state laws in the 19th and the 20th century. And it gives a blueprint for, I think, how to read constitutional text in a way that um, I, I think does result in a pro-life reading, but is does so not because you're just trying to get there, but is respecting what the text itself says and not trying to read in preconceived ideas. So a kind of textualism and originalism. And so I think just digging deeper into that to make the argument that there is no historical or textual basis to claim there's a right to an abortion uh, in, in these old constitutions. Now, the new amendments that some people are trying to pass, that's another question. 
uh, that I think is going to take a legislative reaction, but judicially make the case to the state judges, basically similar to that that was made to the U.S. Supreme Court, but taking into account the particular text and histories of the states. But I, I, I don't think that that's reinventing the wheel. That's modifying, and it was successful at the Supreme Court. I think it can be successful at the judicial level, at the state level as well. Okay, well, that is the uh, judicial front, one of the three fronts you mentioned, judicial, legislative, the other one, the uh, cultural front. Uh, now, in terms of the legislative front, of course, this is staying largely inside the states as well, isn't it? Finding ourselves really, uh, as you as you describe it, in a new field of action. Uh, if you would talk about that and what, what that looks like for people who, who have a pro-life uh, perspective. Right. I think of it two ways. One is Dobbs was one of the greatest invigorations of federalism in the last generation, meaning a massive return of power to the states, but also a massive return of power from judiciaries to the political process. And I think where the second point where that's going to need to be important then is at the legislative level, we're going to have to ask what the virtue of prudence means. And this is part of being wise as serpents. Prudence is a combination of knowing the right thing and realizing how what's the most good, what's the most right you can do in your circumstances. And this is also a recognition that we live in a fallen world. Uh, maybe you can't get a complete abortion ban in your state. That's just not the politics of your electorate. Um, what's the most you can protect life now and then building toward greater? So that's part of being wise in a way that you just didn't have to think about when you're doing court opinions. Um, what kind of arguments most reach voters? Uh, I think the pro-life movement has struggled to define its own message in the aftermath of Dobbs and has too much uh, allowed the other side to dom to, to make it to, to define it for it um and and i think that that's something that we just need to think about and i think that's an experience problem just haven't had the the chance to do it so those are the kind of questions that now open up at the state legislative level is is that question of how far can you go and when and what kind of arguments are most effective to make that case to, to, to real voters who now real, have real power in relation to protecting unborn life or not. And, and I think w w part of your suggestion is something that is a bit uh, contentious or controversial in pro-life circles, and that is uh, kind of whether going for everything, a, a complete pro-life law or some legislation, or I, I think the term is incrementalism, kind of moving toward that. And so isn't there kind of a, a bit of a debate internally that some might say, well, incremental, you're, that's, that's often criticized that you're not really trying for the, the ultimate goal. You're sort of conceding something, and yet that's the political process. Yeah, and, and there's, uh, there's a difference, and of course the difference ha is not always easy and clear-cut to figure out, but there's a difference between compromising your fundamental principle, which no one should do, and being willing to compromise on how far you can get toward that principle at any one time. 
And so what I would say is if you can get a, a band that protects almost all or all the unborn, uh, except for maybe, you know, a life exception for them, not maybe, uh, except for a life exception for the mother or something like that, um, I would say, you know, go for it, do it. <laughs> um, but if it, you go all or nothing in a state like my own Michigan, that's fairly purple on this, uh, moderate, or a state that's very, very liberal, progressive, New York, California, the all or nothing is almost always going to be nothing. Mm. So if you can protect some more lives, protect the most lives possible, be the most pro-life possible, and that's going to take some wisdom to figure out where where that is. So I think this disagreement is about being wise as serpents, uh, because I don't think anyone involved is not wanting to get to the ultimate goal of all uh, children conceived in the womb being welcomed into uh, in, in, into the world. Um, it's a question of what's the best way to get there. And yes, that's frustrating that we can't maybe get it all at once. And the other thing is, if you win a, a partial victory, that's not the end of the battle. Uh, that one partial victory can lead to another, can lead to another. And I think one person to look at this that many Christians have in the past is to uh, the evangelical Englishman, uh, William Wilberforce. He did not get a complete ban on slavery and the slave trade in England immediately in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. It took him his whole life. Was that compromise in the sense of what he thought he could accomplish at the moment? But it was never a compromise of the principle or the pushing toward accomplishing that principle. So these three fronts that the pro-life movement is currently fighting in, of course, the uh, state courts, the legislative front, and then now the cultural. Uh, talk about that. What do you mean by the cultural front uh, and, and what's happening there? So the cultural front, by that I mean that not everything is politics in the strict sense of laws. Certainly not everything is, is judicial forums. We're not in courts 24-7, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, what about the rest of our lives where uh, we, we are living with neighbors, families, churches, civic organizations? What about two things? One, how do we persuade people not just about what the laws should be, but about how we should act in regards to unborn children? And even where abortion is allowed, where can we advocate for making the choice to protect life, even when life isn't protected by law? And how then do we also help those in difficult and unplanned pregnancies, mothers and fathers both? How do we help those women and men who are uh, uh, who they do bring their children to term, but then face all sorts of either medical or situational or economic difficulties. Uh, how, how do we consistently love them and not just love them in trying to get them to keep the pregnancy, but love them uh, through the pregnancy into the childhood years? And so that's where I think things like even more crisis pregnancy centers, which I think the pro-life movement has done an amazing job on already. So I just say more of that. Um, 
thinking about how we individually love those around us. Uh, how do we talk with our neighbors about this in a way that's not just the law, but our own code of ethics? Uh, those are what, what I sort of understood by, by, by culturally. How, how do we, um, uh, in our private interactions, live out consistently the principles that we're articulating in courtrooms and in legislative halls? So the state uh, courts, the judicial front, the legislative front, the state legislatures, and then the cultural, which you've been talking about. And, and there's one other front. You, you didn't raise it uh, specifically, maybe sort of implied in your piece, that of the spiritual front, that the uh, issue of the unborn and protection of them and so on ha has been often characterized as part of the spiritual war that Christians are involved with all the time and always have been. Can you can you address that as well? Yes, and that's a good point. And if anything, I would say that's underlying all three. Ultimately, we are uh, affirming that God is God, that he has made human beings in his image, and that abortion is a manifestation that of of sin in several ways a, a rejection of who god is a rejection of hu who human beings are in relation to him a rejection of what it therefore means to love god and to love our neighbor and to therefore follow the law and that uh, accompanying that affirmation of harming uh, the unborn of killing the unborn has come with it a whole host of other sins that accompany. Often sins don't come by themselves. They they come in a package that kind of mutually reinforces and helps, and that there is a, a great darkness and a great, I think, hindrance not just to God's law but to, to, to the gospel when um, these kind of injustices are not just allowed but advocated for allowed to flourish. If anything, if you watch the way some people, pro-choicers, talk about abortion, especially those who are not themselves claimed to be religious, it takes on, it's almost as if it's part of a kind of religion, that it is almost as if it is a kind of um, ritual or liturgy or something that, that uh, in, in a very distorted way, it becomes a kind of alternative to, to, to true Christian faith, uh, or at least it becomes a part of it. So I think that the spiritual battle um, is underlying the judicial arguments, the legislative arguments, and the arguments and, and, and the case we make personally with each other. Well, the piece is wise as serpents, innocent as doves. One year after Dobbs, Christians have much work to do. You can read it uh, at at the World website. And well, uh, Dr. Carrington, then uh, you're, this is obvious what you're saying for for any that would think, well, the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Those that have a pro-life perspective would say, well, our, our work is largely done now. You're saying not quite. No, uh, I, I would say we're 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 not we're far from from done. Uh, Dobbs, I think, was a significant victory. And now we need to do all we can to uh, protect every unborn child we can, love every mother we can, and create a culture and legal system that respects that God-ordained order of things. 
And, and so as you talk about, uh, as we discuss these things, I think it, toward the end of your piece, you said, to, to do keep in mind, lovingly, prayerfully, something to that effect, that those are the kind of some key terms. Yep. Uh, speak the truth in love. That is, I think, a foundational Pauline, scriptural, Christian mandate. And keep both. Speak the truth. Never back down from the truth of this, but do so lovingly. We are not about destroying another side's arguments. We're about showing them the truth and bringing them into the fold of the church ultimately, but also the cause of justice and and the cause of righteousness as God has given it to us. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Hillsdale College professor, Dr. Adam Carrington. We've been discussing his piece, Wise as Serpents, Innocent as Doves, One Year After Dobbs, Christians Have Much Work to Do. To read it, go to wng.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Teresa Lynn Sidebotham with important safety questions to ask about any summer camp you are planning to send your child to. You want these people to be supporting your family's moral and religious values, not undermining them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At the very least, it should be neutral, and they should not have a campaign to reprogram your children. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.